Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Today we talk to Bettina Gilois. Bettina is an award-winning screenwriter and author whose awards and nominations include the Humanitas Prize, the Black Reels Award, the Movie Guide Award, an ESPY Award, and a nomination for an Emmy. After acquiring an art history degree from Columbia University and working at Andy Warhol's factory, she began her writing career with Joel Silver and Warner Brothers and has since collaborated with such notable artists and producers as Jerry Bruckheimer, Joel Cernow, Norman Jewison, Michael Mann, Martin Campbell, William Friedkin, Queen Latifah, James Coburn, Kevin Costner, Christian Bale, and many others. Her films include Jerry Bruckheimer's Glory Road, for which she was nominated for the Humanitas Prize, McFarlane USA starring Kevin Costner, as well as Bessie for HBO starring Queen Latifah, for which she was nominated for an Emmy for Best Screenwriting. Her other produced projects include uncredited work on The Hurricane, for which Denzel Washington won the Golden Globe, and The Mists of Avalon with Angelica Houston. In addition to writing screenplays, Gillois has authored several books, including Mi Vida Loca, The Crazy Life of Johnny Tapia, and Billion Dollar Painter, The Triumph and Tragedy of Thomas Kincaid, both of which are being made into movies. Her current active projects include writing and creating the series Muscle Shoals with Johnny Depp producing, the series Last Clear Chance with Chelsea Handler, the television movie Mahalia about the life of Mahalia Jackson, as well as the movie A Million Miles Away for Netflix about the first Mexican-American migrant worker to become an astronaut on the International Space Station. When she's not writing screenplays or books, Bettina teaches screenwriting at Chapman University and also writes about arts and culture for the Huffington Post. On this episode, Bettina talks about how she began her career in film, her philosophy on what it takes to become a successful screenwriter, and also discusses how to avoid mistakes and pitfalls that can set you back in your career as a writer in Hollywood. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with screenwriter and author Bettina Gillois. Bettina Gillois, thank you for being on the podcast. Um, it's a real honor to, uh, to get to know you and uh, talk about your career. I'm happy to be here. We're here in uh, Bettina Gillois' home in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. And um, she has graciously made time for us out of a busy writing career to talk about her journey into the arts. Um, Bettina, I've done a little bit of research on your background, but can you tell um, our listeners how you got your start in the film industry? Yes, it was a little bit of a convoluted um, path. I um, moved from Berlin, Germany. It was, it's part of the randomness of life, and in a way it's part of exactly the way things are supposed to happen. I came to New York with barely a plan, just applied to Barnard College and was accepted. And at Barnard Columbia University, there was a television station that was basically empty. Nobody was using. And I don't know how or why at this point, but I got the idea that I was going to do an interview show for 
couple of years out of this television station and I produced and directed it and interviewed people in the arts. And on a practical level, I just thought, well, if I interview a bunch of people for two years, I'll surely I'll get a job by the end of it. And ironically, my first interview was with Slava Zuckerman, who did Liquid Sky, and Andrew Saris, the film critic. And Slava Zuckerman was my first job right out of college, and he was directing a film. And I traveled with him to Berlin to do research for a World War II movie. And I, um, I had grown interested into film because I, was, I studied art history. I was writing, I was painting, and I was also doing music. I was kind of doing everything. And sometimes that's a curse where you don't know what you're really going to do because you have too many options. And um, so out of college... I started working at Andy Warhol's factory as a sort of side job. Um, but while I was waiting to be Slava Zuckerman's directorial assistant, I thought, well, I've got some time. Why don't I write a script? And that's how it started. Wow. So you're at Barnard. You moved to um, in New York from where? From Berlin, Germany. Okay. Um, so were you born in Berlin? I was born in Konstanz. Germany. Um, that's on the Swiss border, Lake Constance. But um, by the time I was five, we were up in Berlin. Yeah. My father uh, established the computer science department at the Technical University of Berlin. And, and from there, he did a lot of university hopping from Berlin to MIT, Berlin to University of Massachusetts, I mean, Minnesota. So we had a lot of back and forth. So I grew up half American, half German. That's why I went to a German-American high school, the John F. Kennedy School in Berlin. So by the time I was, and I did even did a couple of years of college at the University of Maryland, um, outpost in Berlin, <laughs> transferred, just came to New York. Somebody gave me the Village Voice. I looked at it and I said, I'm going to New York. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so everything somehow uh, in my life has to some degree, transpired in this way. I look at a village voice, I say, I'm going there. I, you know, I see an empty TV station, I decide I'm going to... And everything leads to some kind of, you know, giant, um, fateful uh, change in your life. And that fascinates me because I write about people's stories and about people's lives, and the trajectory of people's lives fascinates me it always has i just how every decision that we make at some point where those turning points are where this fork in the road is and what you decide will determine not just the immediate future but literally the path way into the future so at this point because i've been writing about real people's lives for 30 years um i have something that i just call story logic that applies to life i literally see that lives transpire in a way just like stories do. So in real life, I will have a friend ask me, you know, how something terrible just happened? And what if this happens um, as a result? And I say, no, that's not going to happen because that's not the way the story goes. I, I can literally sort of predict. I say, you know, tell me the beginning and I can tell you the ending. Yeah. Story logic that applies to to real lives. Yeah. Yeah, to yes. hu to humanity. Absolutely, huh. I think in some very strange way, our lives really are stories, and 
there's an almost, I have a theory of there's an electromagnetic process to life. You know, we are energetic beings. And when we talk about people, we talk about them in terms of energy. They're energetic. They are powerful. They're in charge. Um, many, many words that we ascribe to human beings have to do with energy. And uh, I put this in one of my scripts. Electromagnetic energy works along magnetic poles. So you have this polarity, which is also part of story always. You always go from opposite to opposite. You start on one side, you have to end up on the other. That's how a story works. The most satisfying story will always end up on polar opposites. And you have these laws of attraction and repulsion right. through magnetism. So, Like rags to riches, riches to rags. Always you know, that, yeah. yes. And also in life and in story, what you pursue will run away. And what you run away from will pursue you. It's literally, that's the nature of all stories and life. So I personally have found that it's best not to like run after things or run away. Right. It's best to stand still and just simply see your life as however you want it to be. Because any kind of, there's an, a Native American saying, any force, any, any force, no matter how concealed, begets resistance. It's the same thing. And I would say any resistance, no matter how concealed, begets force. Uh, so the key is to kind of live your life away from resistance and force and more to be in the middle. Right. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Do you think that that applies also to uh, career goals? Yes, absolutely. Like when you're chasing chasing a dream uh, to be a screenwriter, mm -hmm. um, do you think that that same rule applies? That if you if you chase it, it's going to run away from you. There can't be anxiety will create resistance. It's like I don't know if you notice, but this happens to me for sure. Any day that I'm really in a hurry is the day when all the cars pull in front of you, there's the roadblock, there's, you know, <laughs> the detour. Yeah. Um, when you're relaxed and you're just going to, and you don't care, then the road's all clear. So in some really bizarre way, I just have to say this is based not on some thing I'm following, or this is literally based on 30 years of analyzing and looking at people's lives and observing, because I'm constantly thinking about life and observing how reality works somehow for people and in story. So it's, um, yes, I mean, I, you can, you can have a goal. You want to be a writer and, uh, it's not going to run away from you if, if that's what you really want. Part of it is of course, how much work you put into it. I, um, hard work is there's no there is no replacement for hard work. You just can't underestimate it, um, overestimate it. Right. It's um, extremely crucial that you take what you're doing very seriously and that you take what other people are doing very seriously. I, My first script that I wrote, I mean, this I learned a lot from this experience. I wrote a script, and a lot of writers, and I see this because I work with young people and mentoring young writers, and you're just so happy that you got to the end. You're like, I finished, yay, I'm done. Um, but that's really where the work begins. 
And I got to my, the end of my first script that I wrote that moment when I said, well, I might as well write a script. And I thought, okay, I'm ready. Here, you know, Hollywood, here I come. Um, and I had friends that got it to an agent, and I got a nice rejection letter which said, it's not for us, but Bettina certainly has a flair, whatever that meant. And I, you know, you hang on to every word. But through the back channel, I heard that it had, quote, first script written all over it, unquote. And that was devastating. I was oh. devastated for a day. It never lasts long for me. It's like, you know, for a day I'm bummed. And then I decided, okay. Because for me, any setback, I double down extra hard on mm. the next time. So, okay. Well, the next time is not going to have first script written all over it. And then I began a quest, an absolute quest of perfection. And I wrote and learned and wrote, and I would not stop until it looked and could hold up to any professional script. And that's where you have to be really serious with yourself. I, it becomes a little bit, well, it's, I don't know what the word is, frustrating perhaps when people give you things where you know they could have worked a lot harder. You can see it. Yeah. And you wonder, what is it that makes people not go further? What, and I say this to um, the young people I work with, my students, um, you can't treat screenwriting or a career like that like winning the lottery. You can't just like get to the end and say, well, oh, I think it's good enough and I'll see who will pick it up. Maybe let me expose it and maybe somebody. It's like winning the lottery. That's not how it goes. It has, it's on the page. Everything's on the page. People will say to me, how do I get an agent? And I say, by having a great script. Don't even think about getting an agent. Don't even worry about it. Not right. before you have the absolute best material, and then it won't be a problem. Yeah, do the work and do it well. I worked and worked and worked, and I finally found a story about a helicopter pilot in Phoenix, Arizona. I saw it on 20 minutes or something, and um, this heroic kind of guy. He was the first weather helicopter man, uh, Jerry Foster. He was really a hero in Arizona. And I just called him up. I uh, got, you know, got on the phone, found him, and said, hey, I'd like to write a movie about you, or I'd like to write a story about you. And he said, well, come on down. Um, that's something, by the way, for any writer, if you're interested in writing true stories, people are very open and very accommodating and very happy to talk to you, to invite you into their lives, especially young writers, because you know, they know you don't have an agenda, you're coming from an earnest place. And so I went down to Phoenix and I flew around in a helicopter for a week. I, you know, we flew um, from downtown Phoenix to Prescott, where he had to join in in the parade. He, we landed, he gets on his horse, goes on the parade, we get back in the helicopter, fly off somewhere else. He's constantly doing wheelies and things, trying to make me throw up, thinking this is funny because it's terrifying. But he, um, the reason why he was such a hero is that besides being a weatherman, he dedicated his 24 hours a day, his time in helicopter, to saving people. Um, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office didn't have, nobody had a helicopter at that time except this television station. So he was 
rescuing people out of canyons, you know, with like two inches on the on each side of the blades, like crazy stuff. Yeah, that only he could do flying under power lines, and we ended up in Flagstaff. One of the funniest things, or fun, but this is this is why I love writing. This is part of what is my favorite part about writing. Um, we flew up to Flagstaff where he and a couple of buddies, this is what they do once a year, they rented the side of a mountain and um, they had these old junker cars, completely destroyed cars, rigged and, and up at the top of this mountain on these triggers and so that they could be released and rolled down. And then at the bottom they had an armada of weaponry, machine guns of every kind, you know, and size. I got to shoot a machine gun at a rolling car, basically. Now, where else, you know, when else do you get that chance? <laughs> this is like, I'll never forget that moment and had a weird deja vu feeling too. It's like, what? Um, you know, the, the back, the kickback from the gun or whatever. It was just, but I shot at the car and it was fun. It yeah. was crazy. When, never, when do you get to see these kind of adventures? So besides just being able to immerse into lives and seeing these things, also getting to know people and really understanding them emotionally and there he had a interesting fascinating story and part of so i in any yeah. case he's the one i wrote about that script didn't have first script written all over it in fact it was really solid i only i had one script i got it to one producer who was a friend he said i know an agent i'll show it to the agent that was ari emmanuel of all people the R.E. Stone or whatever, gold from, uh, from Entourage. Uh, yeah, Entourage, yeah. That was my first agent. He said, we'll represent you based on reading the script. Wow. Um, so what what brought you into, I mean, you, you studied art history, and then you started interviewing artists. And um, but, but what brought you into writing? I mean, you could have gone to, to visual arts, to you know painting, to performance arts, conceptual art. Um, to music and um, but you chose writing what what was it about writing that was uh, calling you writing is always something I did as a young kid you know oftentimes I my the thing I wrote would be read to the class so there's some indication that this was an in, inherent talent and gift that I had an interest it's just that I liked all these things and even once I really started at 30, basically, finally, writing all of this, just about. Um, and before that, I was still doing music, and I was still doing art as well. I just, it was one day I got a job, it wasn't 30, it was a little earlier, but I, I got um, hired by uh, Keith Barish and Arnold Copelson because they were doing a helicopter movie, and since I had just done all this research and I was now the helicopter expert. Oh, that's right. Um, with Nicolas Cage, is that? Yes. Yeah. The, well, if I can say that, possibly the worst movie ever. But <laughs> I learned... And what's the name of the movie? It's called Wings of the Apache or Firebirds. It was first Wings Firebirds. of the Apache yeah. and it turned into Firebirds. They just had the concept and they had this kind of written thing and they wanted me to look at it just to ask, you know, what, what do you think about this? And I wrote a 30-page dissertation, literally, on what is wrong with their idea and what the nature of a helicopter is and, and why, you know, how helicopter movies need to work. So they hired me on the spot. There's, there's, an, there's another thing I'd say, overkill never hurts. Like, 
you know, somebody says, what do you think? And you give them a 30-page um, treatment of, of your ideas, you're likely to get hired. Well, yeah. There's something about, I've, I've gone into meetings where uh, to potentially, you know, adapt one book. But I know that there are other attending books that are part of this project. This was something with Maya Angelou and Tavis Smiley. I, I didn't read one book. I read um, all seven of hers. I, I just read nine books. And, and nobody else is going to come into a meeting and have read nine books, basically, and yeah. be that prepared. Overkill is a really good strategy. Well, you're going to make yourself stand out amongst yes. all of the other candidates. I mean, you're working that hard. I think that's a that's a rare quality in anyone. Um, so so you get involved in Firebirds, and what what was it like to be involved in a, a Hollywood project like that? I know you'd worked on Liquid Sky, but I don't think Liquid Sky was really Hollywood. It looked more like avant garde. Yeah, you know, very uh, very um, uh, abstract. I don't know if abstract's the right word, but um, yeah, it was high. high High concept, is that what they call it? or um, uh, I think avant-garde is a pretty good word, actually, yeah, yeah. what you're saying. Um, I um, learned a lot working on Firebirds. After I wrote that dissertation, I was hired and I was part of, I saw th this movie through from a development point of view and on set through the script from the very beginning to its release. And... I was part of hiring the first, just finding the first writer. I was part of overlooking the script once it came in and giving feedback on the writing. I was also reading other scripts, some funny story. Uh, Keith Barish handed me a script the time that he, the, the company, you know, got. And as a submission, he said, have a look at this. I don't get it, but I don't know. Tell me what you think. And it was Die Hard. You know, I read it, I said, this is great. This is insane. This is, what do you mean you don't get it? Um, so funny. Wow. So, so you see the script and... Yeah, I saw it. I read Dyer before it was ever yeah. made. And I, <laughs> it was on the page. Clearly, this is like a great, fantastic story. It was it was all there. Yeah. And so so that was, it sounds like your um, your entrance into the Hollywood film industry and have you stayed there ever since, since Firebirds? Um, it took me until, it took me a few years to actually move to L.A. Once I got my agent, I moved. I was in New York the whole time. I would come to L.A., work on Firebirds, be on the set in Tucson, a lot of Tucson, on locations in Texas. Um, I really kind of commuted for two years. But then once my script was ready, I got the agent. I finally came here full time. Yeah. But I I didn't want to expose after that first time, the first script written all over it, I will tell anybody, it is not. Don't look at it like winning the lottery. If you put out a script that is subpar of even the best work that you're not even aware that you're capable of yet, it's going to expose you and put you on, you know, you, you get you get put on a list. And, you know, writer so-and-so, bad. Right. And... It gets hard to recover from that. It's, it's not worth it. Not, it. It's important not to be impatient. It's really important to not think, just well, let me see, let the outside tell me. You must know from your inside that this is 
that you can stand by this work that is comparable to anything out there. And the way that I often do that and I recommend doing it is to look at other scripts as much as possible. Read other scripts. If you're writing screenplays, have your screenplay. I literally sometimes do that myself. I have mine on the left side of the screen and I have Aaron Sorkin, let's say, on the right side. Yeah. And you can look at scenes. Why does that scene in Aaron Sorkin's movie work so well? Why does that, what is, you know, deconstruct it. Look at how does the drama flow? How does the dialogue work? What is being established? What is being characterized through the characters, you know, revealing themselves? Um, how does the dialogue work? And then compare it to yourself. How does the description look? How many, you know, I have people, I will say, not never more than five lines in a, in a paragraph. It's just too dense. Um, for dialogue or for action? No, for, or? I mean, dialogue, you'll have the speeches, and of course, that's okay, but for action. Okay. Never big blocks. Because I had, before Firebirds started, I did a lot of reading of scripts, and... Um, one of my first rules is never bore or, you know, torture anyone with your script. That's like, it's not even <laughs> that you make it good. Like, don't, don't really like torture somebody yeah. with having to read what you've done and didn't <laughs> bother to make, look good and f feel good and make easy yeah. to read. Make it not che awful. <laughs> yes. Chewing through 10 million words, like too many words. Yeah. Um, I could have a t-shirt that just has too many words i and you teach screenwriting right i do teach screenwriting yes. that's down at chapman mm -hmm. how many years have you been doing that well uh for eight years as well which has really been kind of crazy yeah. having it's really like two careers but it's fun because i can bring the professional right into the classroom and everybody is i have a great relationship with my students i mean they're just fun we make it fun. So, yeah. and I'll, I'll give them, it's more like I'm a writing partner with them or a collaborator. And so my feedback is not academic. It's very professional and they know that. Yeah. And ha having been uh, in academia for eight years teaching screenwriting, do you have hope for the younger generation of writers that we're going to have the same quality or maybe even better quality scripts coming into Hollywood and independent film? <laughs> yes, good question. Um, if they take my class, I do. <laughs> but often I see just, sometimes I'll get thesis students who, you know, after four years, I'm still, there's a lot that can be taught that isn't. Um, and I've been formulating it myself for eight years now. Before that, I didn't have a language for it because I didn't study it in that way and... I, I, which is good. I think I have my own rules of writing and I share those with the students. And I wrote a, an extensive blog for the um, literary magazine at Antioch University where I did my master's in creative nonfiction. Um, and a lot of my rules of writing are there. But they are this, you know, the process of 30 years of writing, basically. I have accumulated these rules and some of them are very practical um like don't have i and i will slash them in a student script all the time we do this all the time you'll start a dialogue you say well comma 
I think I'm going to go now, you know. Um, slash any word that requires a comma right after it at the beginning of your dialogue, cut it. It's fine if it slips in there as we're kind of writing because it's sort of how we think and we think people talk, but it it becomes like this line leak. I call it a line leak. Um, I'm going to go to the store now is much stronger than, well, I'm going to go to the store now. It, it sort of takes the energy out of the entire line. Yeah. So it bleeds out the energy. Right. So I just slash them. I would imagine that actors would naturally, if it's going to work, they're mm -hmm. going to put a well in there. Yeah. But that's not the screenwriter's job no. to be that nuanced with right. With it. Yeah. An actor may feel that, and that, that's fine. But you can do this as a test. I cut that stupid word, that one letter word with, you know, two letters, so, comma, out, and read the line again and just see how much punchier and stronger and more direct it is. Yeah. What, what do you make of writers like uh, David Mamet or Aaron Sorkin who their, their characters speak in a very distinct I mean you, you when you watch an Aaron Sorkin project or a David Mamet film you're like yeah this is Sorkin and this is Mamet um, and, and, and so in some ways it seems not very real I mean it's not the way people talk you know like West Wing, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a completely different um, universe that they've created with the the patter. Um, do you do the same thing with your writing, or do you try to be because you're you're in a biopic sort of um, paradigm? I think mm -hmm. a lot of um, yeah, yeah, a lot of your projects are. Do you try to be really nailing the characters like a hundred percent in terms of their essence, as opposed to you know, the Sorkin and Mamet um, signature um, flair, I guess you would call it. Right. Well, they're, they're particularly like extreme in their identification through how they write dialogue, which I admire in, in both cases. Um, but yes, I do that too. I don't do it to that degree, but it is extremely important. I don't write like people talk because the way people talk is really boring. <laughs> um, it really is. Okay. The everyday talk, I call that empty dialogue. It, if you find yourself, hi, hello, come in, sit down. Yes, no, thank you. All those things are absolutely meaningless. Slash them. It's better to have nothing. I had a student who had a script where mother opens the door and daughter says, hi, hi, honey, come in. Thank you. And I said, it's better if they say nothing. She opens the door and she just walks in. And then we're wondering what's going on between these two. Mm -hmm. Or I said, have her say, what took you so long? Instead of, hi, hello, what took you so long? Is goes right into an action, an attitude. There's backstory to that. There's tension. So immediately we're interested. If you have hi, hello, nobody gives a crap. They're just, it's like it goes in one ear, out the other, and you're not engaged. It's very important to basically have almost every single line in your script not be ordinary dialogue. Yeah. Find a different way of saying the same thing that we say over and over and over again. By inverting it, by finding it, making it humorous, making it an argument, whatever it is, it is extremely important not to write 
yeah plain old dialogue like the way people talk right and and when you're looking at um a life a, a real life that you're trying to put on a page you you are picking and choosing moments that are not ordinary either because most take a life from being born to the time they die a lot of stuff in there is a lot of a lot of stuff in between <laughs> birth and death is just not film worthy you know it's boring yeah. and so w what is your process for choosing the events of someone's life to go into the story logic and to the three act structure of a film or a, a made for TV movie like uh, Bessie or McFarlane USA or Glory Road? Yes, there is a process, very specific. I literally think, or I ask myself before taking on a project and as I'm, let's say, constructing my take or whatever, what is the deepest truth about this person or this story that I can tell? What is the very deepest essence of the meaning of their lives or the meaning of what they do? So taking Glory Road, for instance, I loved that story. The minute I heard about that coach, I heard about the team. And the essence there was this coach wanted nothing more than to win. That was, that's all he cared about. And, and then he recruited seven black players when you didn't do that. And then in the final game, he sits out half of his team. For any coach, especially somebody that ambitious as this coach was, and he's in the biggest game that he most likely will ever be in his life, and he sits out half his team, the white players, to just let the black players play. That still gives me goosebumps, just saying it now. The extraordinary thing about what he did, he wanted nothing more to win, and then in the end he sacrifices everything because he realized that there are more important things than winning for these kids. And the, black, the white players sacrificed their chance at playing in this one game they would ever have for their black compatriots. And all of that, you know, the sacrifice and the loyalty and the su support of each other, um, and then, of course, the victory for these on all black starter team that has never been seen on court. And it's the first time that it's televised and it's being televised all, all across the country. Um, that was just, yeah. you know, extraordinary and it changed the world. And so it was always about that moment for me. It was about the moment when he decided to sit out half the team. And what all of that meant. And after that, you look at each character and who they are in their core. I basically approach not just my characters, but it's become a habit. And I think it would be great for if we all did this all the time. Uh, because if you look at the essence of someone, someone in your life, it's too late by the time you're at the funeral and you're writing the eulogy. And then you think about who they really were in their essence. And then you can really see who they are and what, what their life meant. Yeah. Their, 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 their life means that now when they're alive. And all those little things, and that's why I sort of, I edit out all the little things that don't matter in writing. Everything that doesn't serve the core principle and that, that core meaning of what their life meant and what they did mm. gets left out. 
is just irrelevant. Everything that serves that idea is left in. And we can look at other people in our lives in the same way. We can actually remind ourselves. If we were writing the eulogy right now, we'd probably see them much clearer than we often do because we get lost because of dumb little things where the shoes are left at night or the toothpaste wow. or those things. That is so profound and true. So how did, how did you go about finding the deepest truth for Bessie Smith, someone who died in 1937? That was, there was a limited amount of research that was available, but when that story first came to me, I was struck by one thing, and that is everything I tried to look up about her. The first sentence was always like, Bessie Smith was a crude and violent woman. She was a, you know, um, it was so insulting. Just in the first sentence, it would be the first thing they would say. Bessie Smith wrote almost all of her songs. She literally changed um, the blues by her. It was her voice that started everything. She, she influenced so many people. She was so brilliant. And yeah, she, she could punch a guy's teeth out. She, you know, <laughs> what, what's wrong with that? That's, right. That doesn't make her a crude and violent and these disparaging terms. So I, and that's part of what I do too. I kind of have to, but I do fall in love with my characters and I become their greatest champions. I decided I want her story to come out that dispels all of this nonsense and it shows her in her brilliance and celebrates her and so that we stop writing ridiculous articles that start with those words. Yeah. And how did you approach the issue of her sexuality? Um, you have this strong um, female black character in the 1920s and 30s who is, um, who is bisexual. And I would imagine that there's not a lot of information out there to really understand her that aspect of her. So how did you approach um, putting that on the page? Well, there was some information. There's one great book about Bessie Smith, and it had a lot of anecdotes. And you have to kind of remember the 20s were really crazy times, like crazy times. Um, the uh, There were like sex parties, and I mean, it was a crazy time. So it's not just her. Um, there was a lot of just sort of just wild and crazy fun people were having in the 20s. Um, so that there's an anecdote where she went into a, it was a kind of ball. It was, I don't, I, it had some aspect of not cross-dressing, but some fun raucous ball was being had. She comes in and she always had her moonshine and she lifts her glass in a toast and says, here's to all pussies and assholes. May you always have a pleasant feeling. Um, this was her, you know, yeah. irreverent, body, confident, funny, and complex. She had a gay music director. I forget who it was, but she would, she's, there was an instant when she told him, you're coming with me tonight. And he's like, no, but I'm gay. She says, no, you're, it doesn't matter. You're with Bessie Smith. It's like, this is, you know, she took no, I mean, 
There was no holds barred. She just basically yeah. took what she wanted. And for a woman in the t 30s and the 20s, that's extraordinary. And she was a superstar. She completely managed her own career. She had her own train. She lived in her own world. And she did all of that. Yeah. And she did it traveling through really dangerous parts of the country. Dangerous parts of the country. She yeah. had men, she had women, she had lovers all over the place. And it's just, it was part of the life. It was part of her voracious sort of taking in of life. Um, right. A trailblazer in more yeah. ways than one. This is one thing that I think I often write about. And I think that comes from having a father like I had. He was... He came from a little town in Germany and ended up, you know, at teaching at MIT, forming, uh, establishing the computer science department. And he became a pioneer and a vanguard in computer science in supercomputers. And in the 90s, his institute under his leadership had the fastest supercomputer in the world. So I saw my father go to the very top of his field and... I learned from that that you, there are no boundaries. The boundaries in life are what you set yourself. It literally, if you don't see them, you can go as far as you want. But my father was also complicated. Um, you know, he was moody sometimes. And my mother always said, no, complicated or genius is basically our complicated people. They have to be in order to do what they do. Yeah. So I've be kind of become the great apologist <laughs> for all, because all geniuses, it seems, there's a real problem with writing about geniuses because they're all assholes. Uh, it's, you have <laughs> to be, you have to, to break the rules, to be visionary. You, you have to break all rules and those are often societal rules too. So Aaron Sorkin, for instance, solved that. I know what he had to do. It, because I've been looking at a lot of, because I've written about geniuses and looking at genius movies. Um, Aaron Sorkin solved it in Facebook or a social network by calling him, just calling him a uh, an asshole, you know, in the first scene. So we got that out of the way. So the entire, the movie was solved because it's literally sometimes hard to write about a genius. And, and I think Bessie yeah. Smith was a genius in that way. Um, but some yeah. people would consider an asshole. I like that. I like the rules breakers. I like the people that make changes in life and that that are those visionaries. I don't think you can come up with something that's different without bumping up against, you know, the rules. Yeah, I, I just um, saw the the new David Crosby documentary. It's called David Crosby. Remember my name. And one of the themes. I mean, and he's a musical genius, obviously. Uh, with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and all of his solo work. Um, but, you know, one of the themes of the documentary was that he's an asshole. <laughs> and he, you know, be the first to admit that. And um, it's a, lo a lot of it is about the relationships that he has damaged throughout the years um, and preserved. And uh, But it's interesting to, uh, I think they make for interesting characters on film, assholes. Yeah. You know, it's that that juxtaposition of, you know, everything that they give to the world, you know, the gifts that they give, but also the um, struggles that they have just in ordinary relationships, just being, a, you know, yes. just being nice to their spouse or their kids, mm -hmm. you know. 
So your dad, um, you say he was complicated. Did, did he provide an example or do you look to him as an example of a work ethic that you adopted? And, you know, does that explain why you're such a hard worker <laughs> yes, in some why ways? I read nine books for a meeting. Right. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, you can't go to the very top without taking everything out of yourself with all your strength and going all the way. You do have to take it seriously. So if you do want to do your little thing, that's fine. And you want to have your little success, that's fine. But I've never somehow looked at anything, doing anything worthwhile unless you go to the very top, mm -hmm. basically. And that I for sure learned from him. And definitely the work ethic. That is this family, you know, my daughter just has inherited the same thing. It's sort of like being passed on from yeah. each generation. Um, well, yeah, she sounds pretty amazing. Um, just the traje her trajectory in academia right now is, we haven't talked about that on mic, but your daughter is, um, sounds like she's a genius herself. <laughs> yes. But hopefully a nice genius. <laughs> yeah, she's not, yeah, the, the rare, non, as she should be a little bit more of an asshole sometimes. Right. So but she's still young. Um, get there. <laughs> McFarland USA, was that your first time working with Disney? No, I, I mean, no, uh, Glory Road is also. Oh, it's a Disney mm -hmm. film as well. It was Brookheimer, so, but it, Brookheimer's deal was with Disney, so McFarland was the second Disney film. So uh, I would imagine that you had a, a lot more access to material because that, that track coach is alive and was probably cooperating with them. Um, the project? Did you go spend time with him like you did with the helicopter pilot? Um, with him and his wife, yes. Yeah. Yes, but I have to say about Don Haskins, I did drive down to El Paso. I found him, you know, tracked him down, talked to him, promised that I would tell his story right. He had already had his rights tied up. So he was alive and he had two more years of his rights being tied up, and he and I talked on uh, for two years. I talked to him about catfishing. Just basically, he'd call up, you know, Bettina, how's them catfish up there? And I'd be, they're great, Don. You got to come up. I was living on a ranch at the time, so there was a lot of always the contact. That's part of it, you know. I loved Don Haskins. He was a big bear of a guy, and he called me babe, and it was just hysterical. And when his rights became available, he called me and said, are you still interested? And I said, yes, give us a week, and set it up. And, you know, the rest is history. And the last conversation I had with him before he passed away was where he said, thank you for telling my story right, oh. like you promised. And that means more to me than anything. I believe writing about people is an enormous responsibility. You literally have their entire lives and legacy in your hands, and which is why I also really want to look at what they did and why they're important to bring that across. And that's the most satisfying story to tell. So with the Whites, yes, that was traveling up to McFarland and also talking to the runners and meeting those families. So absolutely, there was a lot of that, a lot of going up there to McFarland. You know, it was close again. And by that time, I'd already lived in New Mexico for 10 years. So the um, Hispanic story is was very familiar. I lived on a ranch for, had a ranch for eight, 10 years and, you know, a Mexican family living with us, their kids grew up with our kids. And oh. so it's, I, I love real worlds and 
that's partially, I also do a lot of work in sort of ethnic and cultural voices, um, underdogs. And I think part of that is from coming from Germany because A, I don't have the sort of maybe inherent, just whatever prejudices might be even unconsciously embedded in this country, I didn't grow up with. So I come with a real blank slate as to how I see people. But when I came, I was seven years old the first time, went into second grade, I, I knew the words yes and no and nothing else. And kids threw rocks at me at the bus stop because they thought I was stupid because they would talk to me and I couldn't, I would just stare at them because I didn't understand them. I think I'm still an outsider a little bit. I understand the outsider in that way. I understand the underdog. And it's what drives me with more passion than anything to bring about justice, to right wrongs, to undo things that shouldn't have happened or hail the unhailed. and. Right. Tell the real story behind what you didn't know. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. And now, if it doesn't mean something, I'm, it holds no interest to me to tell that story. Yeah. So with, with um, a project like McFarland or with Glory Road, um, where you have to go spend time, you don't have to, but you choose to spend a lot of time with these people. And... Um, do you, at that point, when you are, you're talking on the phone about fishing or, or you're going up to McFarland and spending time with the whites, um, you're committing a lot of precious time to something that's not very tangible, right? I mean, you're not typing out words on a page. You're, you're dedicating yourself to understanding them and their story, but at, at that time when you're when you are with these people learning their story do you already have a deal in place so that you know that it's going to pay off at some point or that you're getting paid to do that or is this all like speculative work that you're doing it's a little of both it depends in the case of glory road it was speculative it was just being a normal person, finding him. Same with the helicopter pilot. Yeah. Um, uh, in the case of McFarland, there was um, a producer, Mary Martin, who had signed basically the entire town's rights up. I just probably had 100 people, life rights tied up. Um, so she came with the project already sort of put together like that, looking for writers. So in that case came to me. I, I'm looking at the things I'm doing now. I'd, I'd say half of them I engender, the other half comes to me. Yeah, It's kind of like, you have to be proactive. Um, I also advise my young writers to think about your brand, really, um, and not in a cynical way at all. It's just that I'll see, let's say, young writers... I had a friend, this is my cautionary tale, always, a long time ago, who went to AFI, who won the, basically, you know, the equivalent of their Oscars for a screenplay that at the time was, got him an agent immediately. This was in the 80s and people were, you know, a lot of buddy pictures. This was a buddy picture. He was like the next Shane Black, basically. That's what was the expectation. And he was well on his way. 
And he followed up that script with a kind of oddball comedy about a giant weapon. It was an absurdist comedy and was so different that within a year he was back in New York selling insurance. It was like over yeah. because agents need to be able to say you are a commodity of sorts. It's just like you can think of yourself as a doctor, perhaps. Somebody's not going to say, if they're looking for something, I need a writer who can write this historic piece. Well, I've right. got a writer who does historic pieces. I need somebody who does this story. I've got a sports story. Well, I've got a perfect person who yeah. does sports stories. That is how it works. Right. right. And if you if you go to a doctor and they say, I'll, I'll do surgery <laughs> on your brain and yeah. I'll take care of that... Um, I'll remove that mole. <laughs> exactly. It's You're like, like, wait a minute here. Yes. You, and you start to not trust it. And that is literally what happens. Yeah. You don't trust that writer anymore who has two different things. And already, if you just have two different things, they don't know how to sell you anymore. You're not, they don't know who you are. Um, and the one, they, it contradicts. It's literally like they cancel each other out and you might as well have nothing. It's, it's terrible, but it is also logical. Right. How else are they going to be able to support you? So I really counsel for students coming out of, let's say, grad school or um, thinking about their portfolio. I, I personally recommend, unless you're an absolute genre writer, but we'll put genre aside for a second, um, to come out of school with, let's say, three projects. If you're interested in doing features more than television, I would say have two features and one pilot because tv is important these days yeah and if you're more interested in television i would have two pilots and one feature because it's always helpful they I, this is the ideal portfolio and then to avoid this cross-referencing because if you have two scripts and one is great and one is not so great they'll always give it to the worst one always they'll the good one will seem like the accident and the bad one is the real the real thing that is just know that this is how it works. Mm. Um, anything, don't expose anything if it's not as good as whatever you just showed them, because it always takes everything down. So to, to avoid this comparative cross-referencing where things cancel each other out, I say do one adaptation, one true story, and one original. So that that makes them just different enough where people are not going to say, oh, well, this original was good but this original was not so good so the not so good is who they really are you said earlier that you recommend uh, that aspiring screenwriters read a lot of screenplays where is the best resource for that online i know you could probably order them on amazon which would be expensive is there like a free database somewhere well i, I use script city for if you can't find it online Script City is pretty good, and they'll send you a PDF of a script. And they have they have a lot that you can't find usually. But otherwise, whatever movie that you're looking for, you just write you know big movie PDF. If you just include PDF, all the um, the scripts will come up. You know, or mo big movie script PDF. Right. So there's uh, there's a couple of them. Simply Scripts and Drew's Scriptorama and a bunch of places, um, and there's a couple that are very good having television uh, pilots too. So, but it really it just comes down to the search, a couple of keywords, and you'll find it, and you'll see very quickly if it's not there, and then you can call Script City if they don't have it. 
I'd like to talk a little more about the brand branding that you mentioned. And, and if you read, if you go to um, your website, it's very apparent that you have a brand um, that you have doing, been doing a lot of biopics. And um, I don't know if that's really hundred percent accurate to call it a biopic when, yeah. you know, you're not, you're not talking about someone's entire life, maybe just like in McFarland USA, it's just a one piece of their life. Um, but is there, is there a, um, danger of being typecast in a way as a screenwriter, if you stay too on brand for too long? Um, not for too long. I mean, let's talk about genre. Like I said, let's put that aside for a second. A genre can be great if you want to do, let's say you do thrillers, then just do thrillers and be a really good thriller writer or horror. But the thing about genres, I've seen this happen, is that um, genres sort of, they go for a while in a trend and then it changes. And you can often find yourself, or you can find yourself obsolete. You had a certain brand with the genre and then suddenly the genre changes and it often does and then there'll be a new thing for 10 years and if you can't make that transition or if you're just kind of associated with that former way you can find yourself obsolete that's the the one risk i would say with genre like the um, buddy buddy movies have changed over time yes. too yeah a right. lot yeah so so there's a certain expiration date potential Anyway, in being too, like, genre. And genre means really, like, horror is driven by the genre, you know. Now, you can have character-based genre, perhaps, um, but then it starts to get into character-based drama, which just has a genre element. Uh, if you write about real things that... Characters, really, about real characters, and things that are greater than just plot and genre... You can write forever, I think. that's You could call that the A-list writer, and the A-list writer deals with, and that's what I consider more, let's say, like a American Hustle is not a biopic, but it's about a certain, it is about a true story, and it's about real people, but it's a certain event in time through characters. Um, you'll find A-list writers like Sorkin or um, writing Sometimes history, sometimes you, if you look at Sorkin, it's a pretty good idea of mixing it up a little bit, but there's always a through line of that the characters are really strong, that sometimes genre is a little bit more highlighted, but characters drive everything. And so if, and if you're writing good characters, you're still writing about life. And if you're writing about life, then you have something that endures. If it's about plot, it just, it's has a minute or two of life and and it's gone mm. that's why glory road and mcfarland you know glory road is still playing all the time it's still as relevant now as before because it tells about something more than just sports it's by far more than just a sports story and same with mcfarland it's just about human truths and that's why again when you come back to my what is the deepest truth to tell about this. What is the deepest meaning? What are the human themes in this? Uh, right. Why does it matter on a human level? And people love that. And what a great brand to have is to find and tell someone's deepest truth. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, 
what, how did you get involved with, um, the muscle shoals project that you're working on? Is that something you can talk about? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, that came to me. That's one of those where my agent just said, are you interested in muscle shoals? I said, yes. I said, uh, great. There's a book. It's based on a book. They just sent me a kind of, they had a lookbook kind of, you know, short summary, but I got the book and I read the book before I went in. Um, nobody asked me to, but there was no way that I would not prepare like that. Um, and I read that book, Rick Hall's book, and I just lost my mind over his story. It was just so amazing. I just sort of the rags and to riches is the most extreme I had ever seen anywhere. He grew up poorer than poor. I mean, just like poverty line is what they aspired to. He had, they didn't even, <laughs> they lived in a shack in the mountains. They didn't have beds. They slept on hay bales you know, snow coming through the roof, no shoes in winter, no outhouse. That's fancy, like tree stumps is what the bathroom was. Um, he went from that to producer of the year in the world, you know, 20 years later. And what is, I'm just fascinated, and I think that's like, it's kind of my father's trajectory too, and I think perhaps it's just in me, but fascinated. What does it take to go from that place in the mountains you know, with nothing to, to taking over the world yeah. in your field. It's, and um, I talked to him a lot, and he passed away before I was able to start writing, and, but it was in the process, but I'm really happy to have had the chance to talk with him, and I'll never forget him singing I Did It My Way to me um, over the phone. That's, like, unforgettable. Oh an awesome moment and I've talked to his wife a lot then and since who is absolutely just wonderful and that's the thing I really care about these people that I write about and I'm still in touch with the helicopter pilot and I'm still in touch with people that I've always written about because it's much more than just you know a project to me always well I imagine those connections I mean they're so strong that they're not going away no, you know everything about their lives and, yeah. and you love them because you know everything they went through and it's your job to also feel those feelings and impart them. That's the thing that you really, you experience their lives along with them to really write it adequately. And is Johnny Depp involved in that project somehow? Yeah, he's, a, he's a, an executive producer. His company is a part of it and Nancy Wilson is doing yeah, music. So yeah, and so how do you, as a writer, incorporate the executive producer and the music supervisor or composer into your um, story? You know, and and the ideas that you put on a page. Well, as a writer, first of all, you know, I get to. I did a lot of interviews. I went out to Muscle Shoals. I and then the, then I do my fanatic research because. It's not enough just to do a little bit of surface stuff. I read newspapers from that time, you know, 1961, 1962, went through copious archives. I look at advertisements of the time. I look at what were people thinking and how, what was important to them, what's on the front cover, because it tells you so much. And um, part of what's really fun there is 
I unearthed a, the whole sheriff. I just thought, okay, you're in a small town. It's not just about the music. It's it's about Rick Hall and his wife and their lives, and it's about this studio and this incredible thing they did in the middle of, you know, Alabama, segregated Alabama, to where you have Etta James and Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and Jimmy Hughes and all sorts of people coming out of this little tiny place and literally changing the face of music. Um, how does that happen? And it happens through the complexity of life, really. The, there is that, this is the polarity. There's always these antag antagonizing forces everywhere, even within a person. Yeah. And Rick Hall was deeply troubled. His mother abandoned the family when he was four years old to become a prostitute. So she would rather become a prostitute in a you know, brothel than be his mother. You cannot tell a child in any more straightforward way that he's absolutely meaningless than that. And that is a pain that he never mm. really overcame, and that's what drove him. Mm. And there's always that inciting incident in a person, I find, that is the drive for your life. Uh, I can find it in my father's story. I say, see it in Rick Hall. Um, and I always look for it. If I meet somebody and I get to interview them, I try to find that thing. And it's really that moment right? that created the drive. And I, I would imagine that trauma like that is something that um, not only motivates you, but also perhaps impairs you in some way and, and explains a lot of the dysfunction in people's lives and that, you know, probably can be captured on screen as well. You know, that, um, that trauma is not always going to be used in a positive way by the people that endured it. You right. know, it's going to leak through into, you know, their relationships and things like that. Yeah, that's yeah. where the asshole thing comes into yeah. play sometimes, Yeah, frankly. But it's a part of what it was necessary for Rick Hall. He had to be an absolute perfectionist in order to do what he did. And that meant he was not always nice to people. Yeah. But to pull that off in that place, you know, that was all coming out of him and all out of that pain. When do you expect that project to be uh, completed? It um, was set up at ABC, and then the merger with Fox and Disney and all those things happened. So everything slowed down on the ABC side. But um, it's moving forward with E1. It's just sort of like shifted yeah. in terms of who's behind it right now. Yeah. So. Do you, do you think it might uh, make it onto TV in 2020? or? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's ready to go in the sense of the pilots there, the stories all researched in there. It's really just sitting there. Yeah. So I'd like to go back. Um, I would kick myself if I didn't ask you about Andy Warhol and your, your time working on the miniseries in the, that was in the eighties, right? Yes. Yeah. He had this television series called Andy Warhol's 15 minutes. Um, and it was. 15 minutes long, and he did a couple of interviews. So at that time, I was a PA, you know, plugging in the lights and stuff, and got to watch everything from behind the scenes. And 
he interviewed Paulina Parzhkova. She was the big model at that time. And, and Robin Leach, who I'd like to see. My favorite moment was seeing the conversation between Robin Leach and Andy Warhol. Is that the Lifestyles of the Rich and (laughs) Famous guy? Yeah. He had the big show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and he was standing in front of Andy, and he's yelling at him because he really did yell all the time. He just couldn't speak in a normal decibel. And and he was telling him how this is so great, and just wait till his show goes into syndication. It's going to be a money-making machine. Um, Those words. And Andy's just standing there, you know, his arms folded, nodding (laughs) with his wig. And the disparity of those two was hysterical. Um, so I did a bunch of that while I was writing that helicopter. No, that no, my first script, the bad one. Did you think he was a pretty good interviewer, Andy Warhol? Um, you know, he was eccentric. I had a, I mean, he was fun. He was great. Um, but he was eccentric, like all geniuses are. And um, I had a portion of my life, and that's why I've, you know, I've lived on ranches and dealt with cattle wrestling. I've I'll drive shotgun with the cartel in, in Albuquerque or, you know, the machine guns in Arizona, or I'll, I'll be jetting to Saint-Tropez with people um, in private jets of John Yanielli. I've been all over the place, and part of that is an adventure. Part of my adventurous life was when I came out of college and I had done a bunch of interviews, among them several artists, and I wrote for the art magazine, too, and did some interviews. I met... Larry Gagosian, the art dealer, um, in a in an elevator, basically, literally. And I met him in an elevator. He ditched his date, and I became the next must-have acquisition. And we had a fabulous five years of adventures together. I lived with him down in Soho and then uptown, and we, you know, it was his rise at that time. He was the guy with a bunch of unpacked boxes in a loft who ended up with the de Manil townhouse with the butler and the maid and the pool and everything. Yeah. And so I was part of that as well. And that's where um, Andy, the reason why I'm telling that is, well, I I got to say some extraordinary things during that time too. And that's part of me, really. I will always throw myself into an adventure, no matter what, because I'm just voraciously curious about life and about people and about everything. Right. And um, Andy had a show at Larry Gagosian's gallery down in Soho. They were called the Piss Paintings at the time, these copper paintings that were um, modified through urine somehow. <laughs> but there was a dinner after the show, after the opening, and I sat next to him at the dinner at Aunt, with Andy. And later that year, his diary came out, or within a year or something. And everybody bought the book and, you know, looks up in the index, where am I in this diary? And Larry Gagosian was in the diary where he says, uh, whatever it was, Friday night, uh, date so-and-so, went to Larry's opening of the his paintings or whatever they were called. And, but... There was a dinner, but he didn't invite me, so I went home. And he he claimed that he had been disinvited, which would be a terrible (laughs) thing to do to A, Andy Warhol or any one of your artists, which, of course, never happened. I sat next to him, but it tells you a lot about how much fiction is in his story, and that's okay, too. I, You know, we write our lives in one way or another. I, I read on your website that the Thomas Kincaid book that you wrote is going to be made into a movie. 
Uh, Is that, is that going to be on the screen anytime soon or what's the status of that project? It's being written by, and I, sorry, but I've blanked the name right now. A writer who is doing some big like Avengers type films and he's writing this one. So he's been very busy. So apparently a process that was anticipated to be quick has taken a couple of years. But so I can't anticipate exactly when, but the last thing I heard was that is nearing completion and that could be this year or next year. That'll be awesome. That's a great story. I the book writing is another factor. You know, I decided at some point I want to write books as well because I just want that platform. I decided it would be nice to have another platform. I can always reverse engineer something. I can write a book that can become a movie. Right. And the way I write books is that they're they're very cinematic because coming from being trained as a dramatist, essentially, I'm still telling stories dramatically. And same with the Johnny Tapia book, which I, you know, I'm very proud of that. I knew Johnny Tapia very well, but I wrote that whole book sitting in my room and I basically channeled, you know, Johnny Tapia, the Hispanic boxer, right. speaking, having somebody speak through you like that. It's basically one long monologue. It was a fascinating process and I really loved it. Oh, that's exciting. Um, and all those books are being made into movies, right? Yeah. Yes. That's incredible. I don't know how you find the time <laughs> to write screenplays <laughs> yeah. and books and teach screenwriting and be a mother at the same time. Yes, uh, I just work yeah. constantly. So where can people find you online, um, social media or otherwise? Well, I'm on Twitter, not very active, but I'm there and reachable. Um, Instagram, uh, Facebook is, you know, that limited thing, but... Um, I have a website, Um and I love people. I love talking to people, and I love being helpful in some way or, or another if I can be. Yeah. So I'm I'm to be found. I can be Googled. I'm there in one okay. way or another. <laughs> well, Bettina, thank you so much for talking to us on Dream Path. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.